You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Our guest today is Stephen Yates. Stephen is CEO of DC International, and he formerly served as Vice President Dick Cheney's Deputy National Security Advisor. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you, Alan. Stephen, you recently wrote an op-ed posing the controversial question of, are we witnessing the launch of America's Maoist Cultural Revolution? Before we get into the op-ed itself, could you give our listeners some background as to what was Mao's cultural revolution? When did it occur? What were the results of of that revolution? Well, a lot of people have heard uh, experts on China or global affairs talk about the thousands of years of Chinese recorded history. Uh, It's imprecise given that people will say, well, there's 3,000 to 5,000 years of recorded history. But generally, uh, you'll hear of things that come from the Confucian era, which is usually around 600 uh, before Christ or BCE, uh, up up until uh, the early part of the new millennium, uh, where uh, you had a traditional society with a strong sense of hierarchy. Uh, You had uh, an emphasis on the family unit, rites and rituals, a common history and heritage, kind of an orderly society, uh, and uh, what people would usually refer to as Confucian society emanates out of this era. And it really extended all the way into the early parts of the 1900s. It was at that point where Chinese society began to fray uh, there was an economic downturn, internationalization of the Chinese economy created pressures at home. Uh, the last emperor that people may have seen a movie about was about the last Qing dynasty emperor losing control of the country and uh, a new force emerging that was going to bring science and democracy, supposedly, uh, to governance in China. Uh, That was under what is commonly referred to as the Republican era, which meant the Republic of China, established in 1911-1912, run by a gentleman named Chiang Kai-shek that some people may have heard of, many people probably haven't heard of. Uh, Chiang's tenure of government in this Republican era of China was troubled. Uh, The onset of World War II, Japanese imperialism uh, stretched it beyond its capacity and uh, the government of, uh, of the Republic of China essentially collapsed in a civil war following the end of World War II. That was the rise of the Communist Party of China coming into governance and Mao Zedong declaring a new China. Now this context matters because what Mao was doing was essentially saying that the thousands of years of Chinese heritage, culture, history, governance is being tossed out and a new order is being established. Uh, And uh, this is, I think, the context that was echoed in the Cultural Revolution. Uh, Between its founding in 1949 and when the Cultural Revolution officially began 
1966 and 67, uh, Mao had tried some disastrous economic policies. Uh, mass starvation and crippling of the economy occurred. He was reaching the waning days of his tenure on the earth, and he, he was afraid that he might lose his revolution. And so he allowed the launch of what's called the Great Proletariat Cultural Revolution in order to uh, formally throw out the old order, attack history, attack monuments of the past, attack the institutions of the past, of religion, family, other elements of governance. And it was in order to solidify his revolution, uh, establishing a Marxist, communist, socialist order in China. Now, the effects of his economic policies in the Cultural Revolution led to tens, if not hundreds of millions of fatalities in China. And that doesn't even begin to count casualties. That's just fatalities. Uh, in the Cultural Revolution, you literally had brothers and sisters, children and other relatives engaging in public shaming struggle sessions against other their immediate family. Uh, there was an a, a overt attack against religion. Any kind of building that had to do with religion was subject to uh, a burning or other form of destruction or repurposing for some kind of people's uh, purpose uh, during, during the Cultural Revolution. So uh, this is essentially the backdrop of an effort in China by Mao himself and what became the Maoist Red Guard of young, largely ignorant people who didn't really know what they were doing other than they were whipped up by ideology to go and attack these institutions. Uh, the, uh, a lot of what is pointed to in the subsequent decades of China reaching prosperity really was just recovering from the maniacal destruction inflicted on China itself by its own people under this radical movement. But the terror that it inflicted, ordinary people dared not speak up for themselves, dared not speak up for traditional institutions, lest they be publicly, in today's parlance, deplatformed, or worse, taken out to the public square and stoned or have to wear some kind of a, a slogan hung around their neck until they were essentially lynched by the mob uh, in China. And this happened for about 10 years until Mao's death in 1976 and China's new leadership forswore the, pro the great proletariat cultural revolution. So what is occurring here in the United States that compelled you to write an op-ed with the question, are we seeing the launch of a cultural revolution here, right? Why and and what are your pre preliminary answers to this question? Are we? Yeah, well, my short answer is yes. We're in the early stages of an effort to launch this kind of a revolution. Uh, we, of course, in uh, in in recent months, we've seen uh, a group of people who, under uh, the pretext of uh, an overly abusive law enforcement officer taking the life of someone without due process, uh, something that was an offense to almost all who have observed the, the travesty in Minneapolis, that was taken as a pretext to launch something that clearly was broader and deeper than just 
police reform, criminal justice reform, or something having to do with tweaking the American system. Uh, we've seen something go more broadly geographically, but also in terms of its stated aims beyond issues of uh, legacy racism or inequality in American uh, judicial uh, system to broadly more cultural to really an attack on America itself. We've seen something go from attacking monuments that were said to represent uh, people who had slaves to taking down monuments to advocates for emancipation to monuments that stood for the establishment of, of America. So what I saw was uh, basically a, a range of young people set out in engaged in what appears to be mob behavior, uh, doing things that make no sense to mainstream Americans or disinterested observers, where you'll see very privileged young white activists shouting uh, tremendously offensive and abrasive things at black law enforcement officers who are standing to protect uh, icons and institutions of America, not institutions of slavery or racism or whatever the accusation might be, might be uh, made uh, when this all started. Uh, and these attackers would go against the old and the young, didn't really discriminate on age or uh, race or any other category. We had older black business owners who were victims of these kinds of attacks to just innocent Asian store owners or property owners. Uh, we saw institutions of faith, uh, institutions of government, all equal opportunity targets uh, for this mob. And uh, when I started to see this as advocating for the overthrow of the foundations of the United States, together with this New York Times project that is revisionist history that tries to undermine the virtues, principles, and sacrifice of the revolution and declaration of independence and the constitution itself, this was just all too familiar to anyone who has studied what were the tools and methods used by Mao to revise Chinese history, to concentrate an authoritarian government to impose its will on its people. One of the things that you point out is that in the United States currently, it's not just the people in the streets, not the people that you just described. It's also a support group that, right. that, it, that includes the media. You mentioned the 1619 Project, that bogus project of the New York Times. But the media, whether it's print, Washington Post, New York Times, or television to a large degree, are complicit in pushing forward this narrative and legitimizing it. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and whether they are witting or unwitting in it, uh, we've seen the public struggle sessions with Drew Brees, a famous quarterback, having to apologize multiple times. Uh, for an offense he never really engaged in. Uh, never in the history of our country has standing up for America, its founding, our flag, our national anthem, any of these things really been remotely controversial, much less offensive. Uh, and this just, I think, violent and extreme revisionism that is going on is forcing these public displays out there. And what it, the effect of it is to cower people. We have corporate CEOs 
uh, insisting that all of their employees read revisionist and I would argue racist and resegregationist books uh, that have to do with white privileged, white fragility, or all of these other kinds of topics. Uh, and uh, I, like many people I know, have families that include multiple races. Uh, we don't see America as black and white. We see America as a blend of a lot of different things. And this imposition on us to see the world in only black and white, uh, I think is something that is just more extreme than anything since essentially the Black Panther movement from the 1960s radicalization. Uh, but we've seen pop culture join in, in a way that gives broad platforms to advocates of these ideas and active censorship and deplatforming of anyone who questions it, not just opposes it, but just asks innocuous questions about it. It's submit or be destroyed territory. We have seen going forward on this particular point in universities, we have seen tremendous pressure being put on professors and on students who don't happen to agree with, I'll use the term, the Mao's future for America. And we have seen professors in recent times who have simply questioned one professor, I think it was in California, he said that he, that participating in a demonstration in the streets is not an excuse for not showing up for an exam. And he gets fired or he gets suspended. What role does academia play in setting the foundation for what you're calling a cultural revolution in this country? Well, I think it's been complicit in raising a generation of people who don't actually dive into the causes and purposes of things that have happened in our history. Uh, instead of learning from and improving upon history, I mean, the purpose of our study of these things hasn't usually been to try to an exact judgment on the past. It's to learn and improve upon our present and our future. Uh, and I think that there's a profound pivot in the institution of education where people basically have gone back to recriminate the past and then to demand reparations in the present in order to in, implement a radical agenda in the future. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was raised in an era of idealism. Uh, I was born in 1968 in the middle of one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. Arguably, our current era is going to compete with that. But in the wake of that, we had things like Sesame Street and other kinds of things in public television or what have you, whatever issues we may have had with uh, some forms of indoctrination going through that curriculum, what it was emphasizing was that everyone was to be treated equally. We were supposed to begin with a motivation of love. We were supposed to be focusing on building a better future together. And that form of idealism has been turned completely on its head. We've had a generation of people who are told that there is no improving this system. There is no improving this society. It must be rejected altogether, overturned, and something very different put in its place. And it must exact a penalty from any who oppose and any who benefited from the past. That's the theory. And that, again, is what echoes of Maoism to me. 
Uh, it is not just people have talked about this is just socialism. This is just fancy ideas that have filled the salons of academia in America and around the world. This is something that is worse than just the notions of socialism as a theory or in politics. This is a violent revolutionary moment. I think that we're going that we're at the front end of in America. And if we're not careful, it could destroy more of our society, our economy than we imagine is possible. And all we have to do is look back at what the Chinese people themselves paid for from the 60s and 70s to the present. Are you surprised by the activist role, both financially and verbally, that big business in America is playing in helping to fuel this revolution? I, I'm, a, I'm a surprised by it, but frankly, I think we've seen a major change in kind of the sea level of leadership in corporate America, certainly a significant change in what people attribute to Wall Street leaders, uh, where in the past, this was the buttoned up conservative, assumed Republican bastions of American business and politics and society. So now we have uh, a baby boomer generation that occupies the commanding heights of these institutions. And maybe they're informed by some of what I described as that idealistic uh, move after the, the 60s civil rights movement. Uh, but now as they apply what they're doing today, I think frankly, they're afraid of what they see as these mob movements because it, it, it's, it's like many things in life. It can take many years to succeed, but it only takes a moment to get torn down. Uh, and so one wrong move by them, and they are concerned that they or their company be, can be completely destroyed by reputation, uh, taken off of markets uh, and deplatformed in terms of advertising and being able to engage in public affairs. Uh, just look at global or national brands that feel like they have to associate with icons of what 30 years ago would have been seen entirely as an un-American movement in order to protect themselves against rioting, protest, or social media deplatforming. You know, every time I, uh, I hear something outrageous, I say, can't get worse. <laughs> Yesterday, Walt Disney with Disney Corporation, Walt Disney would turn over in his grave if he saw this, um, hired Colin Kaepernick, who two days earlier called the American uh, Independence Day as a symbol of white supremacy. They just hired him to be a senior level person at Disney. It's just shocking. I'm curious if you would agree, and this is just an off-the-cuff um, response that I had, that when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, whether you voted for him, you voted against him, there was an assault on the electoral process and the whole system of government trying to take that election and saying it wasn't legitimate, it was illegal, this is, we shouldn't accept it. And it was, to me, targeted right at the foundations of our governing process. Would you see that as one of the starting points and of this assault on American institutions? I know it wasn't the starting point, but 
do we turn into a new chapter? Because that assault did not stop for one minute for the last three and a half years. I agree with everything that you said. Uh, and I think that it's, it's one of the most important points that I, I hope is beginning to sink in in our broader society. Uh, the over-personalization of politics in the advent of Donald Trump, uh, it has been a somewhat of a camouflage of this broader, more radical agenda. People try to say it's because of President Trump or something he said. Oftentimes they can't point to what exactly he said that was supposed to be the offending remark. They just sort of take it as a given that something he personally did or said was offensive or authoritarian or what have you. This becomes part of the repetitive mantra. Again, echoing what I studied and, and witnessed in, in China studies on what Maoism is all about and sort of the repetition of grievances until people just accept them as commonplace. But this was all aimed at President Trump as a person and somewhat his movement. But in reality, they were going after things like the electoral college versus the popular vote, which is uh, which is a centuries-long constitutional principle, it goes back to some of the originating thoughts of our founders. They go after the system of capitalism that has done more to liberate people from poverty and is one of the great equalizers. It is no respecter of race, religion, creed, or what have you. It is one of the most uh, race-free concepts there is in in, in, in terms of human development and creation of opportunity. Uh, and so their, their attacks have been much, much more broad based in their movements. Uh, and in many ways, they have been divisive uh, and, and racist in their intent. Uh, when they advocate for women only issues, that's divisive. When they're arguing for black only issues, that's divisive. Uh, when uh, America clearly has both genders, has all different races, creeds, backgrounds, origins in a melting pot. Uh, and uh, so I think they've used the, the personalization of uh, their focus on Donald Trump as a flag of convenience uh, for what is clearly a broader assault on the system. And you're right, it didn't relent at the, on election day in the transition, inauguration day, or for a single moment from the time Donald Trump occupied the Oval Office. It's been unrelenting. Uh, and I think it's one of the key things on the ballot in November of this year that people don't fully understand yet. It would be remiss if I didn't ask you a few questions about Taiwan, Hong Kong, because you're one of our leading experts on China. And first off, my question is, how could a country like Taiwan, which is 80 miles off the coast of China, has a democracy, has an open society, um, how, how do they survive? And what do you think their future is? And what should America be doing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan? Well, hopefully what has happened in recent times makes Americans and allies in other geographies more fully aware that what the Communist Party of China is doing is not just seeking to undermine any threat to its existence in China, but is and also not just looking at its near, near horizons, but is spreading this revolutionary movement and revisionist movement to other geographies. 
Uh, people have seen it in Australia, the UK, uh, Canada, also, but also in the United States, where they've done things to education institutions, uh, where they, they get special treatment on financial markets, but they've actively get engaged in political warfare against our own political system on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And they're using their official diplomats now to say remarkably offensive things about the UK political system, the Canadian political system, the American political system, et cetera. So hopefully people understand that this is, this is a global political war that was declared by this revolutionary communist party of China. Now, the context to understand Taiwan and Hong Kong, I think is uh, Hong Kong has been one of the success stories of capitalism. It was a very, very free society, and it was a key enabler for China's recovery from its own disastrous economic policies. Uh, no small geography in the world is more responsible for trillions of dollars of investment and trillions of dollars of cargo coming and going to China in recent decades, uh, much to the benefit of the Chinese government and the Chinese people. And yet, the leadership of China under Xi Jinping is so either under siege and facing illegitimacy at home or feeling so bold at the moment that they, they want to quash the Hong Kong experiment. And with a new national security law that's passed in Hong Kong, I would argue that Hong Kong no longer has any real autonomy and the frontier of freedom uh, in the struggle against the Communist Party within the broader Chinese domain, ethnically, not politically, uh, has receded to Taiwan, as you say, uh, about 100 miles off of the mainland of China. Uh, and this has been a long-standing struggle. Uh, it won't end in the near future, but the people of Taiwan, 23 million, uh, have proven amazingly resilient. Uh, they were a colony of Japan for 50 years and came out the other side with their own identity. They were under martial law for over 25 years and came out the other side with their own identity. They've been isolated by the international so-called community uh, and its leaders anywhere from the United Nations to the World Health Organization and elsewhere, and yet they still survive and thrive with their own identity. Uh, what they're proving is that the values that our founders correctly identified and we should proudly stand by that are under siege in our own culture are being embodied by these brave people on the other side of the world and I think the least that Americans can do is speak up on behalf of those at the front line, on the front lines and at risk and recognize that their challenge that they face today is very much our challenge. Uh, and that in many ways, uh, the generations of youth in China that have been radicalized and their education system turned on its head, uh, it's what's happening to us in our own society. But the people of Taiwan have resisted that. Uh, they engage the world as it is. They have freedom when it comes to access to information, freedom of association, freedom to demonstrate and protest, uh, and that yet they've maintained their own uh, distinct cultural identity and peaceful and admirable society. Uh, to lose that, I think, would be a loss for humanity, uh, and it would bring this charge of the Communist Party of China further beyond uh, the mainland limits in ways that I think are, are, are uh, I think, unconscionable. So I hope that people can learn from these examples of success because what's happening today there is tomorrow for us. Picking up on something that you said in this um, informative answer, you indicated that there might be 
in communist China, actually that the government that is ruling communist China might not be as stable as in fact the images. The images, they control the world, they are, they have, no one can stop them and they're going off uh, to push their Maoist agenda. Is there possibly trouble within the hierarchy of the Chinese communist uh, government? I, I think that they are in a very precarious position. Uh, they have advantages. They have total control over information. Uh, they have uh, very total control over society. Uh, they have established the most intrusive uh, surveillance state ever known to mankind. Uh, and that's not a position of strength. That's an admission of weakness, in my view. Uh, so the, the benefit that the Communist Party has had is that the older generation of Chinese lived in abject poverty and they're willing to engage in a social compact where expectations are relatively low. Allow us to have regular access to the food we need, the care we need, and to be able to raise our family in relative calm and peace because we have nightmares of what the tumultuous uh, order was of the past. Uh, and so as China has evolved, we have a younger generation uh, who are not content to be assembly line workers, who are the little emperors that have two parents and four grandparents who've invested their entire hope for the future in these young, somewhat perhaps privileged kids. Uh, and yet we have a government in China who's presiding over an economy that is weakening. The, the old manufacturing base is becoming less secure. Uh, one of the consequences of debates and problems of the recent past is people questioning the reliability of having a supply chain out of China. There are tremendous quality control issues re with regard to having over-reliance upon China as a provider. Uh, but just the structure of their economy and the need to meet the basic requirements of their population are coming to a key turning point. And if they fail to meet those needs, at some point, the Chinese people recognize there are way more of us than there are of them in the Communist Party. At most, the Communist Party is the ultimate 1% imposing on its will, its will on the rest of the country. When the people come to the conclusion that they can organize themselves and that they must sacrifice to make a better future, the Communist Party of China is done. Uh, and I think some of the ingredients of that are present today. Uh, the question is, will sufficient numbers feel like they can take the risk that that entails uh, to go after the CCP beast as it's grown uh, to new heights in, in, in the current era? And I think that's what we are watching from the outside with imperfect information trying to gauge. You know, in this scary world, every day we get bombarded with all sorts of scary news. Uh, yesterday was also a day, along with Disney and Colin Kaepernick, you also had news coming that out of, I think it was Inner Mongolia, the bubonic plague <laughs> has reemerged. And uh, we had as our guest an Israeli expert on uh, infectious diseases. And th this was a couple of months ago. And when the virus started to take hold here in the United States, 
And one of the points that he made was that every major health problem in the sense of viruses that spread across the world have originated out of China. And then he mentioned the bubonic plague back in the Middle Ages, which devastated Europe's population. Do you have any, did you hear this? Did you have, do you have any news about this development? I have no particular evidence to prove or disprove the, the particular story, but those kinds of stories are, are nearly ubiquitous. Uh, and it, it comes from, I think what people would understand, a, a, a very clear basis uh, on today's reality in China. If you have a, a large scale government with immense, almost endless resources, absolutely no respect for human life or human dignity, uh, and a decades long track record of having questionable quality control across the board and manufacturing innocuous things to engaging in, in dangerous behavior with regard to the world's most risky and uh, dangerous technologies. Uh, this is, this is a, a dangerous mix. And uh, you know we've had issues of things like milk formula coming out of China and poisoning young infants in China, but also to any market they exported it to. Uh, and uh, you, you take that and extrapolate it to what we've dealt with with the coronavirus, where the Chinese government concealed and lied, and we still don't have any sense of truth about what the origins and nature of the initial spread of that were, but it comes back to no transparency, no respect for human life or human dignity, and completely inadequate quality controls in their manufacturing process. Uh, it would be it would just unimaginable that things like this wouldn't be happening with regard to new strains of dangerous viruses. We had we had as our guest on this podcast Rosemary Gibson, who wrote China RX. And one of the points in that book, which I highly recommend to anybody, for everybody to read, quite frankly, is that without telling anybody, Chinese manufactured medication and they substituted for natural materials, synthetic materials. And those, and, and those ingredients actually were used, sent to the United States were used in medication that was for patients who were going under serious operations, and they had allergic reactions thinking that this was a pure product, when in fact it wasn't. And the Chinese deliberately did it. It was probably cheaper to do it that way. But in any event, Stephen, Stephen Yates, I want to thank you, one, for your service, two, for giving us an education, uh, three, we have been promoting your article on the Maoist Cultural Revolution coming to America. We will continue to do that as we promote the podcast. And I want to thank you for taking time out and, um, and sharing with us your views on China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and the United States. It's been a very informative conversation. Thank you very much, Alan. My pleasure. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. 
You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.